Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast, where Dr. Joel Schwartz and I, Travis, discuss the intersection of faith and philosophy. We are part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Please visit our site at tacticalfaith.com, check out our blog, our other podcasts, and if you live in Alabama or nearby, we would love to see you at one of our events. If you'd like to help support our ministry, please pray for us, share us with your friends, and consider supporting us financially by going to the Donate tab on our page. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Joel. This is Travis. And today we're going to uh, do a podcast on uh, some blog posts Travis did uh, a few months ago uh, on moral arguments. Uh, there's a set of four or five, depending on how you count. And um, in Travis's own words, he doesn't know how to write for normal people. Um, and so uh, the ideas in the in the posts were uh, really good, really important. Um and we thought maybe doing a podcast episode, uh, diving into what he, he said uh, to help mine that a little bit more and um, to give a chance for Travis to explain some of the, the ideas um, to help make them a little more accessible such that you can go back and reread it and be like, oh, that's what Travis is talking about and see how important the ideas are um, for yourself and not just listening to us and taking our word for it. Um, so the... <laughs> the, the the first post starts off talking about the Euthyphro dilemma, a famous uh, a dilemma uh, that uh, comes from a Platonic dialogue, and, and Travis is going to explain that for us. Okay, well, it, it might be interesting just to talk about the dilemma itself and then get in a, into a little bit of what's going on in the Euthyphro Great. and then bring it back to how it applies to Christianity. So uh, the Euthyphro dilemma is a classic problem in ethics. Uh, that is generally used as a criticism uh, specifically of what we might call divine command ethics. So divine command ethics um, is, a, uh, is a belief that what makes something right is that God commands it, and what makes something wrong is that God prohibits it, uh, specifically prohibits it. And uh, uh, the Euthyphro dilemma is generally aimed at that, but can also be aimed at any attempt by uh, religious people, let's just talk about Christians now, since that's what we are, um, to, to derive ethics from God, um, to say that God is the source of ethics or, or, and so on and so forth, which clearly applies to the, to, to the moral argument for God's existence. But let's talk about the Euthyphro Dilemma first. So the Euthyphro Dilemma says something like this. Um, what asks the question? Uh, it creates a dilemma, right? And uh, the first side is, is is something right because God commands it? Or does God command it because it's right? Um, right. That's not precisely how it's worded in the Euthyphro, but that's kind of how it's modified into contemporary. Well, what's the problem with each side of the dilemma? Because there's a problem on both sides. Uh, what's the problem with something being right because God commands it? Well, it could be... They say that what, what this does is it makes mor morality arbitrary because if God, God could have commanded that murder be right, and then it would be right. God com could command that torturing innocent, innocent people is right, then it could be right. And a, a lot of Christians might say 
some Christians might say, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's precisely how morality works. But then we don't have any, it, the problem gets even deeper because we don't have any way to understand God as good because there's no standard to measure God by. So God isn't good. He's just in charge, right? What he says goes. And so there's no standard by which to measure God's goodness. Um, if something is good simply because God commands it and something is wrong because God prohibits it, God could be, God and the devil are indistinguishable except in terms of power. Now, now say a little more about that because I'm sure some of our, our listeners are, you know, might've dropped their phone if they were holding their phone or, or, you know, God and the devil are indistinguishable except from power. Uh, yes. Explain well, yourself. The, uh, so the, the idea, if, if you're going to call something good, and this is a, uh, this actually is a contemporary uh, use of the youth for dilemma. If you're going to call something good, you have to have some kind of standard outside of it by which to measure it, right? Why? Because otherwise, if the person themselves, if the, that person is the standard, um, then there is, uh, then they're, they're just what they are. There's not, maybe I could give an example. To, okay. to, to, to say so if, if you're going to say that someone is a good person, uh, goalie in soccer you have rules you have a framework around that person's actions so you have the rules of soccer you have other players you have statistics you can keep you can compare you know uh the striker you know what kind of strikers they're against versus how many how many shots they block and so on and so forth and you have you have standards by which you can measure how good that goalkeep is but if i were to say if I were to just make up some random game that doesn't even have any rule, the rules are constantly shifting. Uh, you can think of it as sort of a child who's, who's making up a game as they go, even though that gives some standard, but let's say they just make it as they go because they want to always win. So I make up a game that's a ball game and no matter what I do, I get a point. Right. So if I kick it and it gets near what we thought was a, a goal, I get a point. If it goes in the goal, I get a point. If I miss the ball and fall on my face, I get a point. I, I just get a point with my kids. Yeah. So, <laughs> but in that case, suddenly I get a point simply by virtue of being me. There's no standard. There's no context. There's no framework in which to measure whether I'm good or not. It's just I get points. That's the, that's the game is I get points where you're like, you can't say I'm a good, I'm good at that game. I'm not good. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not bad or good. I'm just, are all, if, if we put it in terms of morality, I'm all moral in this terms. I'm, I'm awe skilled, right? I'm, I'm neither good nor bad because there's no framework. Um, and if you were playing with me, you'd get frustrated, but let's say I, we played that game, but I also had, a big gun. You might agree <laughs> to what I'm doing. You might agree with everything I'm saying, but you couldn't, you couldn't in honesty in you couldn't with honesty say that I'm good at the game. You just say, yeah, you win. Right. And that's, that's that cont uh, some contemporary work has been using the youth for dilemma presents that as part of this, so there's a, the either or dilemma is an either or, right? Is something good because God commands it? 
or does God command it because it's good? Well, that first horn of the dilemma is something good because God commands it. They say it's not just an issue of God could command random things. It's that we don't have any standard by which to measure whether God is good because there's no framework external to God. Well, let, let me let me uh, maybe push back, and maybe this is is going to be something uh, in um, how you're going to use the problem or mm-hmm. use the dilemma. Um, but you gave the example of the the goalie, and that we have the framework, and 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 you, know, you can mark statistics and all that kind of stuff. Um, to build on that sports analogy, which is always <laughs> dangerous, um, right? You know. I'm one of those people that says that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player to ever play the game. But more, but when you start looking at the, that framework, there are people who have scored more points than him. There are people who have won more titles than him. There are people who have, you know, if you look at, you know, statistics as far as points and rebounds and assists, and you know, you could make a case that LeBron James is better, but I think there was, there are, things about Michael Jordan that don't fit into that framework that at least that, that we can measure it in a, in the way um, that make him the greatest as opposed to just the, the framework. Yeah. Well, I think even in that context, you could say something like one's attitude, one's, t- one's relationship with the team. I'm not a big fan of sports. So, and I know that's, that's kind of an unforgivable sin here in Alabama, <laughs> but, but, uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of playing them, even though as I get older, my body's not being a fan of playing, them. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, there, there are other things and they might not be strictly measurable, but there's still a framework, right? So like you could think of something like one of the, maybe one of the elements of Michael Jordan is that he had a good attitude, right? I don't know if that's true. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that that he was a team player, right? That he that he was encouraging and people loved to play with him, and so th- this made him good, you know, or or something like that, right? Something that's that's difficult to measure, um, and that's part of what makes him good. Um, that's still that's still something that's still a framework, right? There's still social relations and so on and so forth that gives us the the capacity to not strictly measure it in some sort of mathematical statistical way, but to measure it in terms of the effect he has on the people around him. And we realize that people like that are, are good people and they make everyone else better players because of the way, because of the, the attitudes that they have. It's still, there's still a bit of a framework, right? The framework of friendship, of loving relationships, of team spirit, of these sorts of things that, that come into play. And the problem, the problem with this is that there's, there's no framework for God at all in, in this, in, in this explanation of this horn of the horn of the dilemma, right? We're just setting up the problem. Right, right, right. right. I'm, 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 I'm just trying to, to give, give, give some pushback in some ways that, um, because I, I think, I think, uh, um, I think as Christians, our tendency is to say, well, this horn isn't a problem because God can do whatever he wants. And, God is good. And, and so um, I think as Christians, this tends to be the one that we we want to embrace if we have to embrace one of the horns. And so um, I'm trying to 
um, offer some some pushback to say, well, no, we right. can't accept this horn. Um, we we don't need God doesn't need this framework. Um, yeah. Well, what we're going to come to in the end, I think, of, or at least what I get to in in the argument is really this horn is acceptable, but we have to understand it better. What's going on here? Okay. Because the issue, the issue that I that the issue that I am uncomfortable with, and I've really been wrestling with this ever since I really started paying attention to the fact that the central representation of God the Father is Jesus. All right. Uh, Jesus keeps saying over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Yep. Um, we normally think of Jesus as the nice one and God, the father is the big tough one who puts the laws into place. Right. God, the father is the drill sergeant uh, with the with the gavel and the gun. Um, that's totally mixed metaphors. Um, and Jesus is the nice one. Yeah. But that's not what Jesus, Jesus says. Jesus, as he's suffering as a servant of. And taking on the very nature of a servant in the world says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Yeah. And the manifestation, the glorification of Christ was on the cross and God was most made evident on the cross, which means God is not a big, mean, powerful jerk. This right. is getting into another, right. And who can do whatever the blast he wants because he's got the big guns, right. That's just might makes right. Right. And I think most of us have a problem with that and adding more power doesn't, doesn't make it right or doesn't make it any more right. I mean, um, yeah, my doesn't make right until you reach, uh, all a whole power. bunch of, yeah, all power. And then you can do whatever you want. Um, and that's kind of what this, this, uh, this dilemma is getting to. And so what, uh, what do we do with this horn? Uh, can can we embrace it? And I think saying that God has the big guns is not the right response. That's not a sufficient response uh, to this issue. So, so just to make sure we're clear, you're saying that that we might be able to say God can do whatever He wants, but we can't justify Him doing so because just because He's all powerful. Right. Yes. Um, I don't think we can because then then maybe I can put it this way. Then morality simply reduces to power. Right? Yeah. Morality is nothing more than a function of who has the big guns. Right? And this is this is a, another critique. I mean, this appears in in uh throughout Plato. Um as well. And I think it uh it, book 1 of the Republic one of the there's a there's a guy who's extremely angry. He says justice is simply the advantage of the stronger. It's what is right to to put it in, to maybe to lay that a little bit. What is right is simply what gives those who are in power what they want. Yeah. And people might say, well, but that's okay with God. But if that's the case, then why is it that God? And this is jumping again, jumping elsewhere. What Jesus says, look. You know, you know, the lords of the or the Gentiles lorded over the kings of the Gentiles lorded over one another. Not so with you. Right. In fact, be like me. And what's the major thing that that Jesus represents? Servanthood. The greatest will be the lowliest. Right. Well, we 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 talk about the power of the cross, and I think that's that's so so uh, perfect of a way to think of God's power is that His. His power is most clearly demonstrated as he's hanging on the cross 
being crucified. Um, and that, and so if, if, I mean, that just turns upside down our whole notion of power. And so yeah. it's, it's not a matter of power to get you to do what I want you to do, but power demonstrated of service and love. Yeah. And I, I, I wrote about this in, in a later blog, um, where I try to explain this and I've taught, I've taught a new Testament class and we taught our gospels class and, um, got into some of the ethics of this Richard B. Hayes book on, on the ethics of the new Testament are excellent in this re and, and kind of set me thinking about this sort of thing. But you can, you can see particularly in the books of Luke acts, the there's a, there's a, it's like Luke sets side by side, two forms of power. One I call empire power or the power of the Roman empire, um, which is just a matter of killing people, excluding things, breaking stuff. That's what controls everybody. Um, and then there's this other power, uh, which I just call power of the spirit because, you know, I made that up. Uh, anyway, uh, the power of the spirit, which is evident throughout Luke and Acts, right? The spirit, Jesus acts in the, in the power of the spirit, right? Jesus isn't doing this stuff simply because he's God. He's doing this stuff through the power of the spirit at the behest of the father. Um, it's being, being a servant to all. And so he can walk on water. He can still the storm. He can raise the dead and he himself overcomes death. And then through that, you get this this community that develops that is full of the spirit. And what do they do? Do they go around pointing guns to people's heads and telling them to, to turn to Jesus? No, they sacrifice, they heal, they give, they, they're martyrs. Except to Pr Priscilla um, and Aquila kind of, that's a weird story to fit into that context, but that's <laughs> well, another, that's another discussion. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, there, there's something like that going on. Um, are you talking about Ananias and Sapphira? Oh yes, my uh, yeah. yeah, goodness. Yeah, no, I can explain that story, but it takes a little bit of work. Right. Yeah, that's another. Uh, that's like, another episode. Keep keep. Listening. Yeah, that would be another episode. Um, that, that that's actually a fascinating story. That really that helps set up the contrast in a lot of ways, um, and give some some depth and nuance to it. But in any case, so that's one horn of the dilemma. And part of the problem is part of the problem is there's no standard by which to measure God. Anything could be right or wrong. And in some ways, the only distinguishing characteristic between Satan and God is the amount of power that God wields. In other words, if Satan could win that fight somehow, he would be the quote unquote all good God if we embrace this dilemma, this horn of the dilemma, the way it's been presented. Right? Yep. Um so what's the other what's the other what's the other horn of the dilemma? The other one is, does God say? Uh, there's a little bit more to say about that first horn, but maybe we'll come back to that. Does God does God command things because they are right? If that's the case, then there's a standard outside of God to which God him, God Himself must submit. That seems strange because then the first of all we don't need God for morality because the moral standards are already there. And that's seems like a problem. Um, second of all, God himself must submit to a standard external to himself. And that doesn't seem right because God is the all in all, the source of all things. Um, so we we're uncomfortable embracing that side of the dilemma too. And if you look at this, you could look at this, you know, in a, if you're, you know, an atheist, you're like, yes, there's no good answer for this. In fact, the idea of God in relation to morality, given given that we believe in morality, the idea of God becomes almost an incoherent idea. Mm -hmm. 
so maybe you should just not believe in God. Well, God is the enforcer at that point. Yeah. Or the idea is that I don't need, and, and you, you'll hear this if, if you're ever in an argument or a discussion with an atheist about morality, it'll inevitably, inevitably come up that they'll say, I don't need God to know what is right and wrong. Right. That's yeah, that's a statement. And that's that's pretty that's a pretty standard and, and do people know right and wrong without without thinking directly about God or looking at the commands that he makes? Yeah, for the most part. We most people agree that, you know, killing torturing innocent people is bad. Um most people. Um uh there you know probably shouldn't steal unless you have a lot of, you know, right. It's, people agree with most of this kind of stuff. And the idea is that the standards of right and wrong have nothing to do with God. God is merely, yeah. Like you said, in this case, the enforcer of laws that stand above God. Now what's great about this, the benefit is now we can call God good because he's living in accordance with a law that stands over, over against him, a moral law that stands over against him. The problem is, God doesn't matter with morality, right? Just like, just like the police don't legislate, they simply enforce the laws. God would be like a police officer instead of like the king. Well, let me, let me offer a possible response that I, 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 I could hear someone saying, well, what if God sets the rules that he has to submit to? So God sets the standard of goodness, and then he agrees to play by those rules. Yeah, that that would almost work, but that really just puts us in the first horn of the dilemma. Say more. Right? We have, uh, we we don't have. So that, again, the first horn is that something is right because God commands it. Well, simply because God is consistent, um, doesn't seem sufficient. Um, and there's no reason why he'd need to obey the rules. So c- consider this. So let's let's say God is consistent. God sets a series of rules and says, okay, I'm going to live, I'm going to obey the rules that I myself set up. Okay. That seems reasonable, but still we don't know what, what is right and wrong still remains arbitrary and, and is only right and wrong because God commanded it. Second of all, there's no reason to trust that God would keep his promise because God himself is the standard and all he needs to do is change his mind. So God says, I'm going to obey these rules, I promise. Well, what makes promising important? Simply the fact that he declares it to be important. So he could just say later on, promising doesn't matter. I mean, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the devil. I mean, Jesus is saying, our word should be our word. We shouldn't have to add the, I promise to it. Right. Well, God declared, so we might say that if we accept the, the first horn of the dilemma, God declared that promising is okay, or promising is let it, saying letting keeping your word is moral. What if God just says, you know what, keeping your word isn't moral anymore, or is neutral? I mean, who's going to argue with God? He's the one that set the rules in the first place. There's no authority above him, so therefore he can change his mind. Now he says, I don't change my mind, right? God is not like God is not one to change. Um, but that's starting to get us into the ex- explanation of how we, how we respond to the youth fro dilemma. Um, 
But we haven't even got into Plato's form of the Euthyphro Dilemma because the contemporary <laughs> version of the Euthyphro Dilemma is not Plato's form of the Euthyphro Dilemma. And in fact, I think it's being badly misused. I think Plato almost means the opposite of what pe- of how people use it today. Interesting. But that will take some explanation. Yes. Let's hear uh, some of that explanation. Well, okay. I, I don't know how far we get. We might need to make this into a into a maybe a two podcast series to try to, to try to give some maybe maybe even more to try to explain these. But let's let me give a quick introduction to Plato's Euthyphro and and kind of what's going on here and how I think one should read the Euthyphro. So uh, Plato wrote the Euthyphro. Uh, in it, there's two characters. There's Socrates and there's a a, a man named Euthyphro. This is right before Socrates is about to be put on trial for uh, for two two things: impiety and for corrupting the youth. And so, uh, what is piety? Well, that's the question of the Euthyphro, and that's what actually gets us to the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, Euthyphro is a seer and claims to know more about uh, the Greek religion than pretty much anybody. So he knows what piety is. And the reason what leads to this is Socrates comes across Euthyphro. Socrates is about to go and basically go to what kind of counts as you might call a grand jury to try to figure out whether he should go on trial. Euthyphro is there trying to take his father to trial um, on, on, on a, a murder charge, even though whether it was murder is complicated. Um, on a murder charge, and murder was considered a uh, not simply a, a civil crime, but an actual religious crime that brought me the word was miasma, which has come into English to mean something a little bit different, but it has to do with it would corrupt it would corrupt the people. Socrates is astonished that Euthyphro would bring his own father to court and says, "Wow, you must not fear piety or impi- you must really know what piety is to be able to willing to be willing to take your own father to court." And Euthyphro's like, yes, I know everything there is to know about piety. So Socrates starts asking him questions. What is piety? Because if you can tell me what piety is, then when I go to the Athenian court, I can tell them, hey, Euthyphro taught me what piety is, so I'm sorry I didn't get it before, or look, I have been living piously um, because I know what it is now. You know, uh, a little bit of Socratic irony there perhaps, but Euthyphro starts trying to explain it. Um, Now, in in the midst of this, um, in the midst of this discussion, in fact, right before it starts, Euthyphro is taking his own father to court. And what's interesting about this is that uh, – so he's attacking his father for doing something wrong. And Euthyphro says, look, I'm what I am doing is pious. That's how he answers the first question because that's how a lot of people do when they're responding to Socrates. What I'm doing is pious, and I can prove it. Um, Zeus, after all, who is the most just of the gods, attacked his father. Right, Zeus's father was Kronos. Kronos um, attacked his father. Right, Kronos's father was heaven, um, which is translated into our planet. It's the Greek word Uranus or Uranus. Um, Uranus. Uh, you got to be careful how you say that word. But uh, but so so Kronos uh, attacked his father. Zeus attacked his father, um, and so therefore it is appropriate. For Euthyphro to also prosecute his father, and Socrates says, and this is this is the this is the crux of the Euthyphro, I think, and a lot of people just skip over it. He says, "Do you really believe that the gods are like this? 
Um, in fact, I think this is one of the reasons why I'm being being accused of impiety, because I can't believe that the gods do these things, that the gods attack their fathers, that there's war, that there's battles, that there's all of this animosity among the gods. Do you really believe that these things are true? And Yudhra says, yes, these these are true. And in fact, a bunch of things that you don't even know about are true, too, I could tell you about. And Socrates is like, don't tell me about it. Um, uh, so there's this point where Socrates is like, I don't think the gods are that way. They don't seem, that doesn't seem right. And Euthyphro is like, no, they're absolutely this way. And from that, then Euthyphro starts to try to explain what piety is. And he says, piety is what the gods love. Socrates says, well, which gods? Because some gods love some things and some gods love other things. And since they're at war with one another and people go to war only over the most important things, like what is good, what is just, what is right, what is beautiful. Therefore, they disagree on the most important things. And if they disagree on those, then how do I know that it's actually pious? Um, it might make Athena happy and make Zeus unhappy, in which case it can be both pious and pious at the same time. So you're like, yeah, that's right. Well, it's what all the gods love. And from that lead, it, we're, we're led into the Euthyphro dilemma. Um, how we're led into it is is somewhat complicated, but it's already been kind of presented. Um, why is it? Uh, why does what all the gods love matter? Actually, because the way the Euthyphro presented them is they're at war over the most important things. So how is it that they that they agree upon this one thing? Right? They don't seem to have – let me make the issue a little more clear. One of the struggles that Socrates has all throughout his writings, or really his interlocutors really have, is they have a hard time defining – not a hard time. They are incapable of defining the virtues, explaining what the virtues in fact are. So the Euthyphro ends without, without a good description of piety, without a definition of piety. Uh, or the font, the form, the idos in Greek of, the, of piety. Uh, you can look at other ones where friendship, uh, uh, love, courage, all these other terms, they don't, they don't get defined. These, these, these virtues are, are not defined because people are incapable of defining them. Um, justice, uh, even though people in the Republic who read the Republic badly think justice is defined, but they're reading <laughs> Or at least they're not they're not well defined. Let's put it that way. And so, what that suggests is that we have this relationship to these virtues, in this case, piety, where where we're unclear about what exactly it is. And because of that, there's all kinds of battles, right? Socrates, and if you if you read Plato carefully, you realize that Plato is accusing Athens of impiety, while they're accusing Socrates of impiety, and Euthyphro is accusing his father of impiety, and Socrates thinks Euthyphro is is skirting on the edge of impiety. And there's People accusing everybody of everything because they can't agree, which leads to war, uh, exclusion, hate, violence, fighting, animosity, which is exactly the situation the gods are in, right? They're in situations of war, animosity, fighting, right? Uh, disagreement over, over the most important virtues. So why would their agreement upon something even matter in helping us be certain that it's a virtue, Right? Is right. piety a virtue? Most people, I think Euthyphro and Socrates both agree that it's a virtue. But what kind of virtue is it? And does the Socrates do do the gods caring about it even matter? Well, this should already show that part of what Socrates is complaining about with Euthyphro is that 
uh, or where the Euthyphro dilemma sort of takes us is that uh, Socrates disagrees with Euthyphro about the view of the gods, but Socrates simply accepts Euthyphro's view of the gods for the sake of argument, and it leads to the Euthyphro dilemma. The, the hint here that I think Plato is offering us is if you don't accept Euthyphro's view of the gods, maybe you don't end up in the Euthyphro dilemma. Or to put it another way, if you see the Euthyphro dilemma as a problem, it's a sign that your, your view of the gods is a low view of the gods. So in an attempt to um, infer from what you've said, are you saying that if we find the Euthyphro dilemma to be a dilemma that we have a low view of the triune God? Yes. The problem that I set up, the problem that I set up is a sign that our, if you find that troubling, this is what I think Plato's saying. If you find the dilemma, as we talked about in the first 15, 20 minutes of this podcast, a problem, it's a sign that you have an improperly low view of God. But we probably need to stop there and pick yep. this up on a, on a follow-up podcast where we start, well, what does that mean and how can we respond to this? Yes. Yes. Because I, I'm sure um, we've made a few people uncomfortable with that statement. <laughs> right. um, and uh, yes, it's a statement that we need to flesh out more and, um, and make more clear and hopefully not just um, make the argument for it, but also talk about what does that mean for us if if the use of road dilemma isn't right and, and it's it's not about might makes right and, that, and that's not the picture of god that we should should have um so i i'm looking forward to this next episode to where we talk about this more i hope you are too uh we thank you for joining us today uh, i'm joel and i'm travis thank you much <laughs>